has currently put on up their Christmas tree? Hands up for who has put up their Christmas tree. Keep your hand up if you put up your Christmas tree before December 1st. Okay, a few hands went down. Who here has done or who here has begun the Christmas shopping? Okay, a few hands. Now I want to keep see you keep your hand up if you have finished the Christmas shopping. Oh, some people have finished the, uh, the Christmas shopping. Very, very well done. Um, now, as we enter into December, we will be beginning this new series as we, uh, as we uh, enter towards the Christmas season. And this series that we're going to be uh, speaking uh, through over these next few weeks is called All I Want for Christmas. And throughout December, we're going to be looking at five of the different gifts that Jesus came to bring us when he came here to the, the, uh, came here to this earth. Now, all of us, every single one of us has something that we want and desire this Christmas. The longer I go on in life, the more I find what I want for Christmas changing all of the time. When I was a kid, the main thing I wanted every single year for Christmas was Lego. Then I got a little bit older and the thing I really wanted every single year was some video games. I got a little bit older than that and all I wanted was CDs and DVDs. They're becoming a bit more redundant uh, nowadays. Then eventually I moved out of home and all I really wanted was either a Bunnings voucher or an Officeworks voucher. I just could have spent so much money at either of those places. And now in this new stage of life that I find myself in, all I really want for Christmas is a quiet day at home. <laughs> all of us, we want something for Christmas. But obviously we don't just want these things at Christmas time. Christmas is a great time to ask for the things that we might want and desire. But once the 25th of December comes and goes, if we've uh, if we haven't received what we want, the desire is still there for us. Uh, in our heart. Now, I'm not necessarily talking about presence in the conventional sense, but I'm talking about the desires that drive us deep inside. Every single one of us, whether we acknowledge it or not, we are driven by certain desires that undergird every single one of us. But the difference between living the life that Jesus intended for us or not living the life Jesus intended for us is the difference between following our strongest desires compared to our deepest desires. All of us, we have different levels of desires uh, in ourselves, starting with our strongest desires, going down to our deepest desires. At the very surface level, we have our strongest desires, those things that we can be most driven by in our, uh, in our fleshly selves. Now, this might be as simple as being driven by uh, by food, by water, by heat or by cold, those things that we feel on the surface. But it can also venture further into uh, certain surface level sinful drives that we might have. So the desire to lust, desire for drugs, drunkenness, living a life of excessiveness, addictions, including gambling, spending or pornography. Essentially, worldly hedonism is driven by solely are following those things that are the strongest desires. Now, you can't live a productive life that contributes to society if you are only driven by your strongest desires. Because if you are too driven by these desires, you will probably end up in prison. 
because you'll want something that you can't have and then you'll take it from someone else. But most of us in society, we are not lacking a level of, uh, we're not uh, so uh, lacking self-control that we are driven solely by our strongest desires. And so let's go one level down from our strongest desires. One level down is where we're governed by some deeper desires within ourselves. We might desire a good house, a nice family, a happy workplace, meaning in the activities we do, a stable income, and that's about it. And for many people, including Christians, they are driven by this as their primary motivator. Now, there's nothing bad with any of the things that I've just mentioned, but once again, if these are the desires that you will follow throughout your life, you'll walk away feeling unfulfilled and incomplete. Now, the level below this of what I just mentioned, this is still not our, deep des- our deepest desires, but it, is, uh, it contributes to how every single one of us operates. The level under this is to do with our personality and the way that we've been wired. Every single one of us has been wired differently with different personalities, and so we choose to do things. We are motivated for different reasons. And a lack of awareness of your own motivations can cause you to be ignorant of how other people operate. And this is why uh, this is the why behind many of the things that drive you to do what you do. But then there is the deepest level of who we are. What are the things that you really, really, really want? The things that you desire, the things that you need in your deepest self? What are the things that you were created to find satisfaction in at the deepest level of your being? This satisfaction that I'm talking about at the very deepest level, these deepest desires can only be realised in the gifts that Jesus offers through relationship with him. In one sense, we are all governed and driven by all of these different levels at different times in our lives, these different levels of desires that we have. No one is ever driven purely by just one of these things. I mean, if someone is on the borderline of dying of lack of water and thirst, their strongest desire is water in that moment. They're not really thinking that they want more love or peace in their life. They just want a glass of water to fulfill the desire that they have in that moment. Now, Jesus didn't come to fulfill these temporary fleeting desires that we have in our life. Jesus came to satisfy our deepest desires. He came in part to give us those things that we most desire, need and want in our innermost being. In the words of Jesus himself from John 4, 13 to 14, it says, everyone who drinks this water, he's using this picture of water, everyone who drinks this water, so strongest desires, um, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And throughout this series, we're going to be looking at five of these different things that Jesus has gifted us when he came here to this earth. These are five different gifts that sum up what Jesus gives us when he uh, he came here 2,000 years ago. And today, we're going to be looking at the gift of hope. 
Several years ago, I was interested in a young girl, and this young girl caught my eye after coming to uh, a young adults event that I had been hosting as a youth and young adults pastor on the south side of Brisbane. Uh, this girl caught my eye to such an extent that after working up some courage over several months of minimal interactions, I messaged her over Facebook. We messaged back and forth for a while, and I really had no idea how things were travelling with this girl. I didn't know if she was just being nice in replying to me, or whether there have been may, uh, maybe been some interest there on her end. And eventually, I worked up the courage to take our relationship to the next level. So we had been messaging on Facebook for a while, but we were now taking our relationship to the next level, and I asked for her phone number. It's a very big thing in the modern world today. Now, in the meantime, I had been talking to my best friend and workmate, uh, Tim, about this. And he thought that I was entering into this stage. Now I had this girl's phone number. He thought I was entering into this stage where I could ask her out for a coffee. And so that's what I did. I sent her a message and asked if she would be, uh, be willing to go and have a coffee with me. And then I waited, and I waited, and I waited. My stomach felt funny, and I didn't know what was going to happen in this moment after messaging this girl. And then as I was sitting in a staff meeting in our church office, I got a reply of, sure, I'd love to grab a coffee. Now, my mate Tim was there in this uh, in this staff meeting um, that I was in, and as soon as I got this message, I wasn't able to help but say, score! <laughs> now, all of the church staff, except for Tim, looked at me and was wondering what I was uh, so excited about, but my mate Tim knew what reply I had gotten, and so he gave me a little thumbs up under the, uh, under the table. And of course, that person who said yes to grabbing a coffee was my ex-girlfriend. That's not true, it was, of course it was Sarah. <laughs> Don't worry. Sarah left me for what felt like a lifetime. All I was left doing in that moment was waiting and hoping that she would say yes. This is what we often refer to as hope in our world today. It's a wishing that something will happen. It's an optimism for the best possible outcome. Often we might use this word hope as a synonym for optimism. A hopeful person is a person who will hope for the best out or who will have the best outlook of what might happen in the future. But this is not often based on past events. It's not really based on anything in particular. I hoped that Sarah would say yes to me asking her out for a coffee. I had no idea if she would actually say yes though. I didn't know if she would find me weird and gross or if she would find me wildly attractive. And thank goodness, it was the latter. She found me wildly attractive. But I was optimistic for that, later, for that latter outcome. This kind of hope, this optimism that we, uh, that we speak about when we use this word hope, this is very different from a lot of the biblical words that we translate into hope. There are a few different words that we might translate into hope 
throughout the Bible, or that are translated into hope throughout the Bible. And one of these words in the Old Testament is the word yachal. Can everyone say yachal? Yachal, there was some good chaz in there. Well, this means to wait for. That's the first word that we can use at times uh, throughout uh, the Old Testament uh, for, uh, for hope, which means to wait for. So as an example, this was the word that was used about Noah when he was waiting for the floods to recede. Noah was yakaling, he was hoping for the flood waters to recede. This is a fairly stagnant, still form of waiting. It's a word that we translate uh, like a hoping that doesn't involve much movement or going anywhere. But then there's another Old Testament word that we translate into hope, which is the word chava. Can everyone say chava? Chava, that was good. Chava is another form of waiting, but it involves something else um, through our own experience. There's this tension and expectation uh, in waiting with chava. The first part of this word chav, it comes from this word cord, and it has illusions of tension. So if you pull a cord to its breaking point, um, it will be feeling this sense of tension, and you are waiting for that tension to be released until eventually it breaks. It's like two groups of people playing tug of war and there being tension until eventually there is a release as one team wins the competition. There's a hoping and a waiting with tension and expectation in this form of hope. And we see this word used in Isaiah 8 verses 16 to 17. In Isaiah 8 verses 16 to 17, it says, Bind up this testimony of warning and seal up God's instruction among my disciples. I will wait, I will cover for the Lord who is hiding his face from the descendants of Jacob. I will put my trust in him. I will cover for the Lord. After I had invited Sarah to go out for a coffee with me, then came the big moment of actually needing to go and pick her up and take her where we were going. Now, one thing that you need to be aware of is that my wife uh, is six years younger than me. And so rather than me just picking her up and being able to grab a coffee, she let me know that it was important that I met her dad first. Now, can I just say that I really, really respect and love my father-in-law, and it made perfect sense for him to, uh, to ask this of me. But I must admit, at the moment of driving to her house, understand I've never met him before, at the moment of driving to her house, I was terrified. I left half an hour earlier than I needed to, just to make sure that I would arrive on time. And seeing as there was no traffic whatsoever, I circled the block for about half an hour so that I made sure I arrived at the exact right time. Not a minute early, not a minute late. Now, during this time, my stomach was in knots as I was heading towards her house. I didn't know what to expect of Sarah's father. And I really, really didn't know what to expect of what my time would look like with Sarah and what it would be like for us together. And so I drove around for a long time, and then I eventually worked up the courage to knock on the door, not knowing what to expect. The father of the girl I was interested in wanted to meet me before I um, 
year before I took her out for, for a coffee and I understood why, uh, why, sh why he wanted to do this. And I knocked on the door expecting someone um, resembling a big, buff, burly bodybuilder to come out. And then the sweetest man ever comes out, shakes my hand and welcomes me inside. Now, for this half hour in particular that I had been driving around the block, there was this tension in my stomach. And then when I was able to shake Cameron's hand, this tension was released. But only for a moment, because then I realised now the real work starts. I actually need to take Sarah somewhere and provide some interesting conversation. Now, the idea of to chava is to feel that sort of knot in your stomach. I'm sure you felt it at some stage before. When you are expecting something to happen, when you feel that tension into, into the lead up of something happening, it's that tension that you feel when you know something is going to happen and yet you feel that knot in your stomach anyway. And we choose to translate that uh, word as hope or as waiting. But it's far more than that. It's this emotive word that makes you feel like you are just on the edge. You're just on the precipice of something great happening, and yet it makes your stomach tingle inside. But here in Isaiah 8, 16 to 17, what are they waiting and hoping for? This passage that we've just read, and the passage that we will read, was written about 700 years before Jesus was born. And during this uh, period that Isaiah was written here, Israel was fe uh, facing the threat of the Assyrians. And in their moment of trial, there is this prophecy that is said from uh, the prophet Isaiah. A prophecy that would state that God's, uh, God's people would wait with tension and expectation for the Lord to do something great. The Lord, who at that time had seemed to turn his face away from his own people. This was the Lord that said, uh, that said to Isaiah to wait with that kind of knot in his stomach for God to do something. And so Isaiah was trusting in God in this moment. But what was he trusting in God for? What was he chavaring for? Well, we find it here in chapter 9, which is something that you would be very familiar for, uh, with um, uh, in this passage. Uh, if you have your Bibles, open up to Isaiah 9, 1 to 7. It says, Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honour Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. And this is a, these next few lines is what we commonly uh, quote during, uh, during Christmas time. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. 
the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. And so the tension and expectation that Isaiah had been speaking about in chapter 8 was the tension for the Messiah who was going to come one day. This is one of the most clear passages and prophecies in all of Scripture that points to the coming of Jesus. But Jesus fulfilled this passage in a way that would have been completely unexpected by the Jewish people uh, during, um, during Jesus' life. So much of the language here is fulfilled through Jesus in, uh, in a greater way than was, uh, than was expected. The Israelites, they were waiting with tension and expectation uh, in themselves for someone who would fulfill this prophecy that we just read in a very... Um, in a very concrete, literal sense. So let's take some of the phrases here that we see in Isaiah 9. It says, You have enlarged the nation. They expected the Messiah to make Israel a great nation once again. They were very, uh, a very nationalistic society and they wanted to be on top again. And we keep going. As warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. Uh, for as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of the, their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. And so out of words like that, they were expecting this warrior to rise up and lead them into great victories over their enemies, defeating other nations in war. Keep going. The government will be on his shoulders. They believe that this person, this Messiah who is going to come, would be the national leader, the king over all of Israel. If we keep going. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time and, for, uh, and forever. So the expectation was that Israel would be renewed to their former glory when it was under King David. And uh, the difference, however, in this time is that this reign of the nation of Israel would be unending. It wouldn't finish uh, at any stage. Now, with everything that we have just read, I'm not surprised that the Jewish religious leaders were expecting a great warrior king to come as the Messiah to redeem the nation of Israel from its oppression. I'm not surprised that they denied Jesus being the Messiah because the hope that they had had for a Messiah, this tension and expectation, this strong desire that they had felt within themselves meant that they had, uh, meant that Jesus didn't look like anything that they were hoping for. And yet Jesus came to offer something even better than what they had hoped for. In their concrete, literal understanding of what they had read here throughout the, uh, throughout the prophecy of Isaiah, Jesus came to fulfill in an even greater way than they were able to understand. The hope that Jesus offered is not just based on the circumstances that they found themselves when they were under Roman occupation or Assyrian or Babylonian occupation, but the, uh, the, the hope that Jesus offered was based on him as a person, which makes the hope that he offers unending. The hope that Jesus offers is greater than Yachal or Kavar. He fulfills these hopes but exceeds them as well. 
Now, there's no doubt that Jesus fulfilled these prophecies, but in a very different way from the way I read it just before. So let's take some of those same phrases, but let's see how Jesus actually fulfilled this prophecy. When it says, you have enlarged the nation, Jesus came to invite all nations to be part of the people of God. When it says, you shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, Jesus did shatter the burden and the bar of oppression, but, those th- uh, but the bar of oppression of, of sin over people, uh, in people's lives. When it says the government will be on his shoulders, this is symbolizing royal authority here. And what is the greatest royal authority in, uh, in the heavens and the earth? Well, it's the king over everything. Of the greatness of the government and peace, there will be no end. Jesus came not to establish any earthly kingdom, which is always destined to face an end at some point, but his kingdom is truly eternal. A kingdom, in Isaiah's words, that he will uphold with justice and righteousness. This chavah, this tension that they were feeling within their stomach, it was fulfilled and exceeded when Jesus came here to this earth. The hope that they had was exceeded through Jesus. But then in the New Testament, the hope that is spoken about that we have in Jesus is given a new meaning. The word for hope in the New Testament is this word elpis, which is a new living hope that we are offered based on a person. This word elpis, it doesn't mean hope, in the way that we had used hope before or the way that we use hope in our world, it's far more of an uh, assurance, a knowing based on what has been seen and done in the past. It's God's past faithfulness that we look back on that motivates hope for the future. So you look forward with certainty by looking back at faithfulness. And in 1 Peter, we see this word used explicitly throughout chapter 1 as Peter speaks to the new living hope that Jesus brings to all of his people. In 1 Peter, a few different places it says hope. Uh, in, uh, In verses 3 to 5, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, never spoil and never fade. The inherit- this inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Skipping down to verse 13. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope, on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. Verse 21. Through him you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him so that your faith and your hope are in God. The hope that we have today is this assurance of a living hope and it's based on the resurrection of Jesus Because we can be sure that Jesus rose from the dead, we can have hope in what our future is going to look like. It's this sort of hope that is actually recognised by 
uh, many psycho uh, psychologists around the world today as something that we need to survive uh, when we go through some of the hardest times in our lives. A man, uh, a well-known uh, man called uh, Viktor Frankl was a, a Jewish Austrian born in 1905 in Vienna. Due to where Victor was born and at the time that he was born, um, and the fact that he was Jewish, when the Second World War came around, um, he was one of the first people to be transported between different concentration camps by Nazi Germany, including the camps of Auschwitz and Dachau. Out of all of his friends and family, including his wife, only he and one of his sisters survived after being captive for two and a half years by the Nazis. And he wrote a book which he's most famous for. And this book is called Man's Searching for Meaning, in which he spends about a half hour of the, about, sorry, he spends about half of the book simply retelling his story of what happened to him when he was there in the camp. But the second half of this book is about the things that he learned as a survivor, and particularly what he learned as a psychiatrist. When he entered into the concentration camps, he had just graduated as a psychiatrist, and so what he would do in the evenings while he was there, after a long day of gruelling work in those camps, is that he would counsel people and he would do therapy with them. Now, in a strange and yet beautiful way, he was trying to grasp what were the things that were keeping people alive here in these concentration camps. And one of the things that he said was, although the concentration camps were, were awful, what it did is that it condensed all of the worst moments of the average person's life all into one moment. So he was saying... Um, that the loss experienced in the concentration camp was familiar to everyone, but usually everyone experiences this over a longer period of time. Everyone loses family members at, uh, uh, at some stage. Everyone can be taken from where they found roots and found a home. Everyone will lose friends and other loved ones. Everyone will lose the status that they have previously had. Everyone will lose their own health and well-being at some stage. But his point is that uh, is that usually this will happen for every person over an entire lifetime and yet here in the concentration camp all of these different pains and these sufferings that people will go through they were condensed into a very brief period. He began to obsess over how people would be dealing with this and how people were staying alive. And what he observed was that anyone who was able to survive, they were the people who were able to find hope in something that transcended their own circumstances. These people, the people that survived and came out the other side, these people believed that their lives had some greater purpose apart from just their, uh, their existence that they faced in the concentration camps. And he put people in a few different groups uh, out of the different sessions that he had with people. He viewed some people as handling the situation that they faced like animals. There were people who had no hope of anything and they simply began responding to what they went through with some animal instincts. This was the majority of people, the people who would do anything to survive, including killing one another for warmth or for food. They were just driven by their natural instinct. Senseless, random, angry actions 
doing whatever was necessary to survive. So that was one group of people in how they handled that situation. But then there were the people that he called the zombies, the people who would block out everything that was happening to them and, he would just, and they would just respond with cold, distance, uncomfortable indifference and apathy to everything that was going on around them. Their bodies and minds would literally just shut down to what was happening around them and they began to ignore everything that they found just to be able to, uh, to numb themselves. He actually tells a story in his book of a man who believed that the war would end on a certain day and that they would be uh, taken from captivity. And this man believed that the war would end with such, uh, with such assurance that when this day came and went, it wasn't long, it was only about a week that this man ended up dying solely because he had lost hope in his life. Then there were the people, the third group of people that he... Uh, that he um, said existed with those who survived. Most people who survived had a level of hope where they were holding out for the end of the war and were hoping to see their, their loved ones again. They were hoping that life would get back to the way it used to be. But of course, nothing was going to be the same way after all of this had happened. This left most of these people who got on the out, out of the other side feeling lonely or depressed and incapable of offering their fullest to the world after this had happened. But then there were those people, this final group, this very small group, who had some level of genuine hope in themselves. And Viktor Frankl, he tells of a baker who simply desired to bake bread again. He tells of a musician who simply wanted to write music again. And for Viktor Frankl himself, his hope that he had was simply to practice psychiatry again. And he realised that there is a hope that transcends your circumstances that you, uh, that you face on a day-to-day -day basis. And this was the kind of hope that people irrelevant of your circumstances can't take away from you. Now, Viktor Frankl, although he is a profound thinker and a Holocaust survivor, he was not a believer in Jesus. So I have always found some of his results a little bit strange, that he was able to have this level of hope that one day he would be free to practice psychiatry again. Because in reality, if we look at his situation purely objectively, there was a high chance that he was not going to be getting out of that concentration camp. Although he may have been able to achieve high levels of hope in his own life, there was still something missing for him, which was complete and utter assurance. That's the reason that only a few people were able to achieve that level of hope, because nothing was sure in that sort of circumstance. But here, what Peter says to us in 1 Peter is that every single Christian, every follower of Jesus, is able to achieve that level of hope in your life because your hope is founded on something. It's assured. It's founded on the truth of the resurrection of Jesus. Now, the group of churches that Peter was writing to here, they were suffering huge things in their, uh, in their lives. 
They may have lost loved ones. They may have been beaten by the authorities. They may have been stolen from. Their houses may have been burnt down. And it's into this sort of context that Peter is calling the readers to view what they're going through with an eternal uh, perspective and find hope that one day everything is going to be made right. Just remember that this is not blind optimism that Peter is calling his hearers to in this moment. He's not telling them at all to just turn their frowns upside down. He's not even telling them to ignore the suffering that they are going through and just pretend everything is okay. That also wasn't true of Peter's life. He didn't have a blind optimism. Peter himself went through terrible pain in his life and he witnessed his own Messiah anguishing in pain before he went to the cross. But what Peter is pointing out here is that amidst any suffering or pain that a follower of Jesus goes through, there is a truth that exceeds the current reality. It's lifted above the current reality. In a sense, there's a reality that surpasses this reality that we find ourselves in right now. And it's a reality where Jesus will bring us one day into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. That's what was spoken of with the Messiah in the Old Testament. And that's what was spoken of Jesus here. Now, many of you may have heard this at some stage, that our hope is very different because it's a sure, assured hope. Our hope is guaranteed because of this sort of language in the New Testament. But how do we know this hope is true? Well, because our hope is based in a living person, Jesus is alive. He has risen, but he is still risen. Jesus is alive as much today as he ever was in the past. Who is the person writing here? Well, it's the Apostle Peter. He is the one commissioned by Jesus himself to take the church into its next stage after Jesus ascends into heaven. This is also the same Peter who watched Jesus ascend into heaven with his very own eyes and then preached one of the most important sermons in all history, leading thousands of people to Jesus. It's this Peter who chooses to use the word living hope. You see, in Peter's mind, there's no difference between the risen Jesus walking on earth here physically and then the risen Jesus present in other ways. He believes with all his heart that Jesus has been risen from the dead and that Jesus is alive right now and is at work. And it's because of that fact that he is alive that we can have this assurance of hope in our lives. The living Jesus, he is the reason that we can be confident without a shadow of a doubt that we have a sure future in experiencing the new heavens and the new earth with King Jesus reigning over all of it. This means for you today, whatever suffering, pain, depression, sickness, anxiety, loss or struggle that you have gone through or are going through, None of those things in your life has the last word. Jesus has the last word. And he promises that there will be a day when there will be no more suffering and no more pain. When you will enter into an inheritance that will never perish, spoil or fade. And so lift your perspective over your circumstances, particularly for those of you who are going through difficulty in your life right now. Do what you can to lift your perspective 
Gain clarity in your mind of the hope that you have. Gain an eternal view on what your life looks like. As I said, that is particularly true for those of you who are going through pain and suffering in your life right now. I just want to invite you to, uh, to stand to your feet. And I just really want to... Um, yes, stand to your feet, please. I just really want to offer you the opportunity um, right now. Um, I just want to pray for, uh, for everyone in our church. But in particular, I just want to lift up those of you who are just doing it really tough at the moment, who are just um, have some need in your life. Um, and because we are a church who doesn't do this journey on our own, I just want to ask you, um, if you are going through some sort of loss, suffering, difficulty, pain in your life right now, I just want to invite you to raise your hand where you are and we are going to pray for you. This doesn't need to be a, a big thing. Band, if you want to come on up right now. Um, but if you're going through something in your life that you just want uh, uh, prayer for right now, just lift your hand up and for the people who are near these people, can you just gather around them and lay your hands on them as they begin to, uh, to lift up their hands. And we just want to pray that you will be able to experience the hope of Jesus, the assurance that Jesus offers um, in, uh, in your life. So, um, yeah, if you're feeling that right now, if there is any difficulty that you're going through, just feel free to lift your hand. You don't need to tell the people around you, and we just want to spend some time praying for you. So uh, let's pray together. Lord, we really um, thank you for the, uh, for the hope that we have in Jesus. Lord, there is an assurance that we are able to um, experience because of uh, the resurrection of Jesus. And so we do ask right now, for those who are experiencing um, health issues in this room or online right now, we pray that you will give them the eternal hope that they are able to uh, experience. Lord, for those who are dealing with um, with relational difficulties at the moment. We do pray that you will um, bring reconciliation. But would you also help them to, to understand that any pain that they are feeling right now, that it won't be forever, that you, King Jesus, will return one day to make everything right. For those who are facing the loss of a loved one, them assurance right now in this moment, particularly for those who might be, who might have lost a loved one who knew you, give them that assurance that one day they will see um, their friend or family member once again. Lord, we do ask that you will give all of us this assurance in our lives, help us to know your faithfulness as we look back in the past. And as we look back in the past to what you have done, we know with certainty what you are going to do in the future. So we ask that you will help us to understand that more every single day, particularly for those of us, Lord, who might be going through a really good time in our lives right now. Um, Lord, for every single one of us who might, for, for everyone who's going through that sort of stage in their life, I know that's not going to be going on forever. And so would you cement these truths into our hearts right now? Jesus' name.